Thank you. I'm glad I got called up and not called out. <laughs> Two different things. Thanks for having me back. Thanks for coming out on a cold night to hear me speak about one of my favorite generals. Governor General, Major General Governor Kemble Warren is one of the most underappreciated and misunderstood senior generals of the Civil War. During the course of the war, he rose in rank from Lieutenant Colonel to Major General of Volunteers, and he played a vital role in the planning and conduct of every major battle of the Army of the Potomac from Chancellorsville through the end of the war, and he was a participant in all the other battles as well. After Gettysburg, Warren led the Second Corps from uh, August of 1863 until March of 1864, at which time he took command of the Fifth Corps and commanded that until April 1st of 1865. During the Overland and Petersburg campaigns, he uh, fought in every battle, conducted several independent actions, of which he was victorious, until the Battle of Five Forks, when General Phil Sheridan accused him of dilatoriness, inaction, and reluctance to fight. In other words, being a coward. Sheridan removed Warren from command. Prior to that, every general under whom Warren served praised him. There were only two exceptions to that. U.S. Grant, who gave Sheridan the, the authority to remove him, and Sheridan, who did. After this, Grant denied Warren his recourse to a court of inquiry, both as general and as president of the United States, and he and Phil Sheridan effectively smeared Warren's reputation in the history books. Warren was born on January 8, 1830 in Cold Spring, New York, across the Hudson River from West Point. He attended West Point, graduating second in the class of 1850, and he was appointed to the Corps of Engineers and served with distinction in the 10 years before the Civil War. He exhibited, during that time, he exhibited many of the traits that made him a successful general. A great uh, tireless uh, work ethic, ingenuity, self-reliance, and precision in everything that he did. He showed a great capacity for independent operations, and he led three exploratory missions into the previously uncharted Dakota territories, which he mapped under authority of the Secretary of, of, the, of War and uh, filled in the gaps in the knowledge of that region that existed. During that time, he also conducted archaeological and scientific surveys and sent hundreds and hundreds of artifacts back uh, to the Smithsonian Institute where they are uh, in the collections today. If anybody knows one thing about Governor Kemble Warren, it's his reputation as being the savior of Little Round Top. On Ju July 2nd, 1863, the second day of the Battle of Gettysburg, uh, while he was conducting a reconnaissance of the Union lines, he recognized that the important position on Little Round Top was vacated when Dan Sickles moved the Third Corps forward. And acting on his own authority, he diverted troops that were going to support Sickles to man Little Round Top immediately prior to the attack that was launched on the Union left flank. His monument on Little Round Top is arguably the most famous monument, the most recognizable one on any Civil War battlefield. 
If anybody knows two things about Governor Kemble Warren, it's that on April 1st, 1865, after appearing in the Confederate rear and destroying their lines at the Battle of Five Forks, he found out that General Phil Sheridan had removed him from command of the Fifth Corps. If anybody knows three things about General Governor Kemble Warren, it's that he spent the rest of his life after that trying to seeking justice for the unlawful removal of him from command and the denial of his right to seek redress with the court of inquiry. He spent the next 14 years trying to undo the damage that he felt was done his reputation by General Phil Sheridan. And he lived long enough to know the results of the court of inquiry, but he died before they were made publicly known. Most of the rest of what we know or think we know about General Warren is flawed. A recent book delves into the uh, incidents of the Five Forks Court of Inquiry in some detail, but they don't really go into the unlawful nature of that removal or the consequences of it. Warren needs redemption, not for his actions as a Civil War general, but by his subsequent treatment by generations of those chronicling the history of the Civil War. Much of what we know about him was written by the men who destroyed his reputation and their cronies. U.S. Grant, Philip Sheridan, and their supporters. The writings of these men has colored what we think we know about Warren and has been so often repeated that it's accepted as gospel. We treat it as truth. We recognize it and we know what everybody says we know because we've heard it so often. But who checks the facts? Who here would want to be remembered based on the words of their worst enemies? I know that I would much rather get a flattering invite to speak than I would and have you hear or read what somebody wrote about me in the newsletter than to read an account of me that would have been prepared by my ex-wife. <laughs> It might be a little different. <laughs> Historically, the chief critics of Warren were Ulysses S. Grant and Phil Sheridan, who unlawfully removed him from command and then actively blocked his uh, quest for justice. In order to justify their actions, Grant, Sheridan, and their cronies embarked on a smear campaign of the general that started with Sheridan's report a month after the Battle of Five Forks, and their memoirs and what they wrote has taken root in the history books ever after. They created Warren in their image. The man that we know is who they wanted us to know. They painted a portrait of this subordinate general who despite his inarguable talents, could not be depended upon in an emergency because of fatal character flaws. Some of Grant's cronies were also writers of this history. Adam Badeau, Charles A. Dana, James Harrison Wilson went out of their way to distort, misrepresent, and actually invent situations that explain and justify Warren's removal. Warren died in 1882. The same year that Adam Badeau's Military History of U.S. Grant was published. Grant wrote his memoirs in 1885. Sheridan wrote his in 1888. And Wilson's contribution came in 1912. Thus Warren was not able to respond to any of the comments or descriptions of events that these men wrote. 
Many of the early histories of the war depended on the writings of these men, especially Grant, whose memoirs have always been accepted without question until recently. Well, here's Grant. This is what Grant wrote about Warren in his memoirs. He was a man, Warren, was a man of fine intelligence, great earnestness, quick perception, and could make his dispositions as quickly as any officer under difficulties where he was forced to act. But I had, I had before discovered a defect which was beyond his control. He could see every danger at a glance before he encountered it. He would not only make preparations to meet the danger which might occur, but he would inform his commanding officer what others should do while he was executing his move. There was no officer more capable nor one more prompt in acting than Warren when the enemy forced him to do it. Well, we kind of call that damning with faint praise. Is he praising him or criticizing him? This is Adam Badeau who wrote the military history of U.S. Grant. He was Grant's military secretary. This is what he writes in uh, his fiction. Well, his imagination would make Walt Disney jealous, let's put it that way. Warren never seemed to appreciate the tremendous importance in battle of time. He elaborated and developed and prepared as carefully and cautiously and deliberately in the immediate presence of the enemy as if there was nothing else to do. And while he was preparing and looking out for his flanks, the moment in which victory was possible usually slipped away. Of course, he backs that up with zero in examples and zero evidence. This is a, another comment. Warren's gallantry and patriotism were beyond all question. His abilities were marked, and his subordination was undoubted. And yet all were wasted by this one quality of intellectual, or rather moral, feebleness. He could not put doubts out of his mind and concentrate all his energies into a moment of action, leaving to others above and below him the responsibilities that belonged to them. While he was cautiously maneuvering, the critical moment passed. He developed his line when he should have assaulted and skirmished and felt the enemy till the enemy either escaped or fortified in his presence. And when he was quite ready, there was often no occasion for readiness. Like I said, that, that also comes without example or evidence. Here's Phil Sheridan. He did not like Warren. Sheridan and Warren had a falling out from the Battle of the Wilderness until April 1st of 1865. He did not want Warren under his command, but he was stuck with him. But Grant had given Sheridan permission to relieve Warren if the need arose. Naturally, Sheridan found the need. Warren had marched all night after winning the victory at the Battle of the White Oak Road on March 31st. Uh, he was forced to abandon his gains to go to the relief of Phil Sheridan, who was crying for help because he was getting whipped at Dinwiddie Courthouse. Warren marched all night, built a bridge, uh, arrived in the mor early morning hours, and waited several hours before Sheridan even contacted him to meet. Sheridan then gave him the wrong plans, drew a bad map of where he was supposed to attack, which Warren corrected in combat, and then when he couldn't find Warren, Sheridan relieved him and accused him of not even being on the battlefield. Despite the victory, Sheridan removed Warren, claiming that he was trying to dodge 
the battle. General Warren, he wrote, did not exert himself to get his corps up as rapidly as he might have done. And his manner gave me the impression that he wished the sun to go down before dispositions for the attack could be completed. Sounds like cowardice to me. Did to Warren, too. It is understood, uh, Sylvanus Cadwallader, another uh, a newspaper reporter who was in Grant's camp, it is understood, Warren's removal, to have been because of Warren's tardiness or refusal to obey orders by charging the rebel lines. I have not a doubt that his removal was right and proper. Of course, there's no basis for that either. Warren's removal was a shock not only to him, to the Fifth Corps, even to the Confederates. Nobody could understand why this had happened. In August of 1863, as he was a temporary corps commander and right after he was getting his laurels for what he did at Gettysburg, in a letter to his wife Emily, Warren wrote, So many people have spoken well of me that I think it is about time I died and closed my military career. If I could just be killed in a great and victorious battle in which I took part, I might have a biography. If I live too long, I'm afraid I will be found out not to be such a general. Well, there's in fact three biographies of Warren in print, so he didn't have to die uh, to merit one. Uh, there's a fourth one in the works, maybe. <laughs> of these three books, uh, the first one by Emerson Taylor is the classic. It was commissioned by Warren's daughter, and it presents Warren as almost a demigod. Nothing that he does is wrong, and everything that he does is right. He's very uncritical in his assessment of the general. In the middle book, which is the newest one, that's really just a thumbnail sketch of Warren's life, and it concentrates on some of the events of the Five Forks and Court of Inquiry. The only scholarly biography is David Jordan's Happiness is Not My Companion. This book is a little problematical, starting with the title. David Jordan uh, asks the question in his introduction, who was Governor K. Warren? And then he says, it's a name that you probably recognize and you can't quite place. You know you should know him, but you can't think of why. He portrays Warren as a talented but troubled person, a manic depressive who was a querulous subordinate and despite his talents and despite his fight for justice, died of a broken heart at the end of his, at the end of his life. The book, the title, Happiness is Not My Companion, is a quote from a letter that Governor Warren wrote to his wife during the war. And happiness is not my companion is one, some of the phraseology he's using as he's writing to her, not because he's poor, poor, pitiful me crying in his tent, but because he's not with his wife, whom he loves and can't spend any time with. He was actually called out of his honeymoon to go back to Gettysburg. So that's why happiness isn't his companion. Not because he's a manic depressive and this is his own self-assessment that's being used to smear his reputation in the title of the book. I, I, don't even, I only wrote this book because I didn't have, read this book because I didn't have it. I was sorry that I did. <laughs> Jordan could have chosen another quote 
to talk about, to, to name his book. Here's a Civil War general, corps commander that fights in every battle. And this is a line from one of his letters. I aspire to be a soldier. Well, isn't that a good title for a Civil War book? <laughs> that line is in the same letter. It's three or four lines down from the happiness is not my companion. Jordan uses the evidence of his investigation into Warren's life selectively. He makes a case, but he, he sways the evidence to make his case. He doesn't let the evidence lead him to his conclusions. He starts with his conclusions and then presents facts that support it. He doesn't even, in the book, he doesn't even mention several of Warren's accomplishments, like winning at the Battle of Bethesda Church and several other places. He doesn't even bring them up. Many historians, you probably recognize all or some of these faces, some, many of them have been here. Actually, I think all but one of them have been here. Uh, <laughs> uh, they rely on Jordan's depiction of Warren as being the correct one. But in his introduction to the book, Jordan writes that anybody using the same sources, the same 62 boxes of papers in the New York State Library at Albany uh, to study Warren might come to different conclusions about the general and his personality than Jordan did. Well, he was right. <laughs> Most of the cliches about Warren that appear in the books that we read today, like a couple that are on the table over there, uh, or were, uh, use the same words and descriptions to present Warren without looking to see the authenticity or to verify some of those facts. I think they're predisposed to judge Warren in a negative light because they've been trained to do so. They accept what they have read without bothering to check the facts or the fictions behind the conclusions. They use their predisposed notions and they color their own conclusions to fit into this, this uh, preconceived model. Well, where I used to work, they called that profiling. <laughs> Many of these men, I believe, don't even realize what they're doing. And if you read some of what they write, you'll see what I mean. We'll give a few examples. But consider how Warren's introduced in most of the books that we read. First, we're given his background, early service, his physical description, and a listing of all of his positive traits. But, but then... But, but, and it's a really big but. <laughs> we get the disclaimer. Warren was cautious, argumentative, preached to his superiors. He was too independent and slow. These are his fatal flaws. <laughs> then he's described in action, usually succeeding. He gets watered down credit for his success, and he gets blamed for failures that aren't of his own making. And he's not even president. <laughs> Those who present these arguments usually fail to explain why Warren was retained in command of a corps for almost two full years if he was such a troublesome subordinate. There was plenty of time to get rid of him if he's such a pain in the you-know-what. But they keep him, and they keep giving him important assignments. And that doesn't quite equate with the reputation that's described after the fact. In fact, Warren was usually successful, and even during some of the problems that he had, he was as successful, at least not as big a failure, as his peers. There's no, no logical reason to keep somebody who's slow, cautious, problematic, argumentative in a senior command. 
But since he's branded that way, we always try to fit him into the mold. So even when you, you explain his success, you have to put in that fatal flaw and explain it somehow. So modern historians recycle that image. According to Glenn LaFantasy in one of his books, in the high command, his fellow officers respected Warren's ability as an engineer, but disliked his arrogance and insolence. Warren's temper was legendary. Warren was a true believer which worked a great deal in his favor. His patriotic was pure and undiluted. Gordon Ray, whose fabulous four volumes on the Overland campaign are, are going to stand as the, the works for a generation or more, describes Warren as an odd duck, who despite being uh, scholarly and intense, rubbed people the wrong way. Warren was intelligent, energetic, and brave, but glaring deficiencies <laughs> canceled his strengths. Warren handled troops with excessive caution and habitually questioned orders rather than promptly executing them. He was rude and curt and critical to a fault. But that's about Warren, not me. Uh, he was an excellent engineer. <laughs> and cartographer and a spectacular combat record. But, but, there's that but again. He was a nitpicker with a penchant for meddling in matters that were none of his legitimate concern. At the After the wilderness, he became cautious and was unable to bring himself to assault breastworks. National Park historian Frank O'Reilly states that Warren reinvented himself after each of his successes and failures. Sort of like a chameleon, he just changed colors whenever it was suitable. And another historian states, uh, characterizes Warren as being competent but uninspiring, playing off the old army prejudice that engineers don't fight aggressively. Well, these negative characterizations have become so common that they're accepted as fact. And this is just a handful of the books that we can talk about. But in several, new, several of these newer works, the authors take deliberate, mean-spirited swipes at Warren. Here's some examples. Warren was an obnoxious little creature, but others saw him as promising. The beady-eyed staff officer would earn a reputation for overcautious slowness. Warren was a finicky micromanager who too often proved willing to let his own sense of what should be done trump the orders of his superiors. Having assassinated his character, the authors then go on usually to detail all the positive things he accomplished during the campaign. Clearly their opinions have been shaped by the negative assessments that they know they have to factor into the equation, even if it's illogical based on what they just wrote. They don't cite sources to lead one to believe otherwise. In this manner, their works are flawed because of their blind acceptance of unsubstantiated claims, and they never offer examples or proofs to back up what they're saying. Richard Summers, in his book, uh, Richmond Redeemed, which is a, a minute chronicle of the 5th Offensive at Petersburg in September of 1864, writes of Warren's conduct during the Battle of Peebles Farm. Warren was commanding the 5th Corps, and he was assigned to cooperate with 9th Corps Commander John Park to assault 
the Southside Railroad in the vicinity of Peebles Farm. Warren's men go into the battle, they capture a fort, and they're within a short distance, half a mile or less, of the Southside Railroad tracks when Park refuses to continue the assault. And in front of witnesses, Warren is begging Park, who is his senior, to carry on the attack and complete the objective. Park will not do it. In fact, some members of the 5th Corps would write that they hated the 9th Corps more than they hated the Confederates. This is what Richard Summers says. Warren was hesitant, not just because he feared danger, not just because he feared imperfection, but also because he feared responsibility. What bothered Warren was the responsibility for grand tactics, making the fateful decision to precipitate battle and concerning himself with potential enemy responses beyond his sight. This made him hesitant. But wait a minute. That should be about Park. He was the commander of the Joint Corps effort. With 5th Corps, another comment from Summers, with 5th Corps headquarters providing little leadership, the responsibility for getting through the woods rested on the veteran soldiers. As Warren was making his way to the battlefield, he had his pioneers cut a path through the forest so that his wagons could get through, and he actually arrived ahead of schedule with a road, with two roads, one for the troops and one for the support. Uh, but he's moving too slow and too cautiously for Richard Summers. But the soldiers, it's their responsibility for getting through because their cautious commander isn't doing it. The soldiers, they do not know the strategic and personal characteristics that restrained Warren, but they knew enough to proceed slowly and cautiously. Is there a disconnect? <laughs> the troops are wise for, for going forward slowly and cautiously because they don't know what their commander does. But if their commander is going slowly and cautiously, maybe it's because he does know. But they don't investigate that. Another quote, like so many engineers, the New Yorker abhorred the uncertainties of war and wanted to arrange everything perfectly before acting. Another Few Corps commanders then in Virginia could handle combat as well as Governor K. Warren. This is in the same book. Did he read his book? <laughs> if only a senior officer was around to free him of operational responsibility. It is no coincidence, I believe, that most of these negative characterizations of Warren became apparent only after U.S. Grant joined the Army of the Potomac. And we just uh, talked about this book a little bit. George Meade is primarily responsible for elevating Warren to Corps Command. The two generals had a good working relationship. They were both engineers, and during the Chancellorsville campaign, Warren, as chief engineer under Hooker, built the defensive fortifications for the Army's rear guard that Meade had uh, command of. And Meade and Warren had a mutual respect and admiration for each other, Warren being 10 to 15 years younger than Meade at the time, so almost a father-son sort of, or uncle-nephew sort of uh, relationship, which is very good up until June 19th or 20th at Petersburg. After the failed 
or mismanaged attacks of June 18th uh, when Meade sends a very nasty uh, order to both Warren and Burnside because he's uh, angry at their lack of preparedness to make another attack on the new Confederate lines. Uh, they have a big blowout in front of witnesses and Warren says some nasty things to Meade and Meade doesn't like it. And so Meade writes a letter to U.S. Grant, he wants Warren removed from command of the Fifth Corps. And he writes this long letter. This paragraph that I'm going to read is what is used to define Warren in the history books. No officer in this army exceeds General Warren in personal gallantry, in activity, in zeal, in sleepless energy, nor in devotion to his duties. The defect with General Warren consists in too great reliance on his own judgment and in an apparent impossibility on his part to yield his judgment so as to promptly execute orders, where these orders should happen not to receive his sanction or be in accordance with his views. That's the one that we usually get. Now, Meade never sent this letter. He reconsidered it. He told Grant about it. He may have even shown it to him. But he didn't send it, so it's not an official letter. It's an official uh, opinion, but it didn't go into effect. Now, Paula Walker and I spent a week in the Pennsylvania Historical Society in Philadelphia going through George Gordon Meade's papers and uh, Andrew Humphrey's papers, trying to find some correspondence relative to this other than the document itself. Warren, Humphreys, and Meade had a good working relationship. All three were engineers. They respected each other. They consulted each other on almost every decision. So Warren had an open door to Meade to come in and tell him what he thought. He's a corps commander. You would think the commanding general would want to know what all his corps commanders thought. It's not that big of a deal uh, if you're running the show to know what the commander's plans are and to pick out problems that maybe you can fix, especially if you have that open door. Meade never sent the letter. Now, if you look in John Simon's volumes of the papers of Ulysses S. Grant, the entire letter is presented. And it's about two pages long in, in the small print of the footnotes. And whoops, for this letter, there's some weird punctuation. You'll see a, a sentence and then like an extended hyphen or a dash, and then another few words and a dash, and another sentence and a dash. Not periods or commas or anything, and it's kind of weird punctuation for somebody as meticulous as Mead. Well, when you look at the original document in Mead's handwriting, those dashes aren't dashes. Those are periods and commas written in anger. You can see the tails on, you can see the impressions on the paper. He was mad when he wrote that letter. And of course, Meade was mild-mannered. That's why his nickname was Old Peppery uh, by people in his own staff. He had a temper tantrum. He had a falling out with Warren. Tried to relieve him. Thought he was going to do it. Then reconsidered. Warren found out about the letter through word of mouth and confronted Meade and even wrote a response to it. And they kind of cleared the air between them. They were never bestest buddies again, but they still had that working relationship. Everybody quotes this letter, including National Park historians, as the basis for proving that Warren was such a bastard to work with. But they neglect the others. Most of that paragraph is praise. 
And there's another line in there which where Meade writes that in nine times out of ten, he would defer to Warren's judgment. Well, if you believe this guy 90% of the time and he questions you, why would you be mad that he's questioning you? <laughs> it, it's not logical to go there. This is Marcina Patrick, the Provost Marshal for the Army of the Potomac. He did not like Warren, and this is what he writes. Uh, Warren has been so puffed up and elated and swelled up that his arrogance and insolence are intolerable. He is a very loathsome, profane, ungentlemanly, and disgusting puppy in power. Well, he's like... I won't say old because I think he was a little younger than me when he wrote that, but, but Warren's about 15 or 20 years his junior, and so when you have this young upstart coming up and being the rising star, there's some resentment in the Army, and that's a lot of the problem that some of these generals had with Warren, who was the youngest corps commander in the Army of the Potomac, by far. Well, what about some of the other people? Other officers, those who served with him or under him, had a high regard for him. Alexander Hayes and John Gibbon described Warren as being the rising star of the army. Alexander Webb, who would eventually be Meade's chief of staff, praised Warren, stating that Warren was always where he was supposed to be and doing what needed to be done. And Frank Haskell, who was the chronicler of Gettysburg, wrote, Warren is a man of the right sort, and I'm getting to like him much. Such men as he are required to end this war. Men who will not hesitate to strike when a chance occurs, and who will hanker after a chance and run forward to meet it. Wait, this is the cautious, slow-moving, meticulous, painstaking, questioning officer. These are the guys who fought for him. There's a disconnect. Washington Roebling was on Warren's staff. Uh, he later became Warren's brother-in-law. He hid his relationship with young Emily uh, from his commander for a while. <laughs> and then he went on to build the Brooklyn Bridge. His writings and his chronicling of the 1864 campaign reveal somebody that's diametrically opposed to the poor, poor, pitiful, manic, depressive Warren that David Jordan gives us. We rely heavily on these two men's accounts of the war. Theodore Lyman, who was on Meade's staff, he was a scientist, a naturalist, uh, that wanted to have some uh, experience with the Army, so he was given a commission as lieutenant colonel, and he rode around with Meade. The other one is Ch Colonel uh, uh, Charles Wainwright, who was the uh, artillery commander of the Fifth Corps. Both of their memoirs, uh, Meade's headquarters by uh, Lyman and, uh, I can't think of the name of Wainwright's book, but yes, <coughs> say it again, Diary of Battle, Diary of Battle. thank you. Uh, they both are with Warren on a daily basis. Wainwright doesn't like Warren. He respects him, he admires his good qualities, but he feels that Warren keeps him under close confinement, doesn't let him spread his own wings the way that Warren wants to spread, and he doesn't feel he gets enough credit when he does things. And he's really mad when Warren takes command over some of his guns a few times and won't let 
what Wainwright play with Wainwright's guns. And so he seems to forget that he's the subordinate. So some of what he writes has to be taken with a grain of salt for that personal reason. Theodore Lyman describes Warren as being the only man of originality in the army. But he's also driven to distraction because when he's on the lines looking for Warren, going to Warren's headquarters, Warren isn't in his headquarters. He's out reconnoitering the lines, and so Lyman has to go under fire to make a communication with him. And Lyman doesn't like that. He doesn't like going where the bullets are flying, which is where Warren usually is. But in their characterizations of him, neither man ever ever questions Warren's competence or his generalship. Only his personality quirks, like when he's moody or when he's angry or when he's swearing and creating new profanities. Well, we, we rely heavily on what they write, but their memoirs were published long after the other books that we've discussed. Well, here's Joshua Lawrence Chamberlain, who almost got killed serving under Warren. Uh, and in his book, The Passing of the Armies, which is a full volume defending Warren against the ludicrous charges of Phil Sheridan, he writes, Warren was capable of organizing an entire battle plan on a great field. He would have been an admirable chief of staff of the army where brains outweigh temperament. He could see the whole comprehensively and adjust the parts subordinate to it. But he had a certain ardor of temperament, which, although it brought him distinction as a subordinate commander, seemed to work against him as a corps commander. It led him to go in personally with a single division of, or brigade when a sharp fight came on. Doing this when having a larger command, one takes risk of losing grasp of the whole. He doesn't say Warren does. He says he risks doing it. But Warren's greatest victory, arguably, is the Battle of Five Forts, when, because his division commanders are following the faulty map provided by Sheridan, Warren realizes the mistake, rides off, takes control of the errant division, marches it back all the way into the Confederate rear and rolls up their line. If he hadn't done that, there might be a different tale of the removal. These two men, Charles A. Dana, newspaper reporter and assistant secretary of war, that's a fatal combination, <laughs> and Sylvanus Cadwallader, whose parents obviously didn't like him to saddle him with that name, <laughs> both were very critical of General Warren. Dana, as Secretary of War, was constantly with the Army and constantly sending tidbits of gossip and rumor back to the War Department. But even he was forced to praise Warren on several occasions after occurrences on the battlefield. Sylvanus Cadwallader never, ever, even by mistake, said anything nice about Warren. So, but he would write it in the newspaper so you know it's true and read his memoirs. There were two prominent generals in front of Richmond who I instinctively distrusted. Governor K. Warren and Benjamin Butler. Warren forfeited the high estimation in which Grant once held him. He was egotistical. His caution was excessive. His distrust of everyone's judgment which ran counter to his own was universal. He lacked many qualities of a great commander. Of course, he doesn't back any of that up or give examples either of the negative or what those great qualities are that Warren doesn't have. Probably because he doesn't know them because he was a newspaper man and not a soldier. So who is Governor Kemble Warren? 
Let's look at a list of his war record uh, real quickly. In June of 1861, at the Battle of Big Bethel, Lieutenant Colonel Warren kept his cool under fire, organized a rear guard, and successfully carried off the dead and wounded from the battlefield, earning the praise of Ben Butler. At Gaines's Mill, his demi-brigade fought tenaciously all day long until Hood drove Fitzjohn Porter away at the end of the day. At the Second Battle of Bull Run, Warren threw his demi-brigade in front of Longstreet's attack and had about 75% casualties, but bought just enough time for John Pope to stabilize his line and make an orderly retreat from the battlefield. At Fredericksburg, Warren was charged with the rear guard after the debacle of December 13th, and as the Army of the Potomac is pulling out of town, Warren's men are the rear guard, and he's there until the last man crosses over and the pontoon boats are cut. That last man was Governor K. Warren. At Chancellorsville, acting as Joe Hooker's chief engineer, Hooker wanted him as chief of staff, but Warren wanted to be an engineer. Uh, some say that he was Hooker's brains during that battle. He was all over the field making sure that the other commanders were doing what Hooker had planned. He helped to stem Stonewall's breakthrough attack by personally taking command on the field and diverting artillery into positions where they could slow Stonewall down. Then, without sleep, he rode into Fredericksburg to get John Cedric to go attack Mary's Heights, break the Confederate line, and come back to the main army, ending up at Salem Church, where another battle was fought. Then, at Chancellorsville, he was in charge of building the defensive works that guarded the rear guard commanded by Meade as the army made its way back north across the rivers to end the campaign. That's where he and Meade first came into close contact. At Gettysburg, as chief engineer under Hooker, he reconnoitered the lines and saved Little Round Top and did a whole bunch of other stuff that nobody ever pays attention to. After that, as temporary commander of the Second Corps in August, he won two battles, the, fifth, the Second Corps alone, because the rest of the army was retreating to Centerville uh, against the entire Confederate army uh, under A.P. Hill and Jeb Stewart, winning battles at Auburn and Bristow Station. In November, at Mine Run, where he's in command of two-thirds of the Federal Army because he found a weakness in the Confederate lines, Meade gave him discretionary authority to bring on the battle the next morning at a pre-designated time. About half an hour before the battle, on a very frosty November 30th morning, Governor K. Warren and Washington Roebling crawled up to the Confederate lines to examine the terrain before the attack and realized that where there had been no fortifications the day before, there were now impregnable fortifications. And as an expert in design, Warren knew what he was talking about. On his own authority, this cautious general canceled the attack, knowing he was risking his entire career. Meade found out about it, was furious, came up and gave Warren a piece of his mind which he couldn't spare and then went and looked at the lines and said, you were right. And Meade took the political hit. Some say that was the breaking point in their relationship. But in the months after, in November, December, January, and February, when the investigations by the Joint Committee were going on, Warren was called up and the Army of the Potomac was reorganized into three corps. Warren 
was responsible for that organization and got command of one of the core. Now, if this is such a bad guy, this is the perfect time to get rid of him. They got rid of a bunch of other people, but he's given one of the premier spots. And then he leads the fifth core till the end of the war up to five forks, often leading independent actions. That's the war record. While many Civil War generals are criticized for not learning from the new tactics and the new defensive possibilities, Warren's criticized because he does. This man can do no right. He knows how strong those defenses are, so he looks for a better way rather than Grant's direct straight on into the, the cannon's way to do it. Nobody could accuse him of physical or moral cowardice, although they do, but he's almost he has horses shot out from under him continuously during the war, even at Five Forks, where another officer throws himself in front of a bullet that probably would have killed Warren. He's criticized for both what he did and didn't do. He's criticized for making piecemeal attacks against his better judgment when he says, look, this is a bad idea, and then the attack fails. And then he's criticized for making those piecemeal attacks and failing. He can't win, no matter what he does. But his men loved him. He taught them, now he drilled them constantly. When he was a lieutenant colonel of the 5th New York at the beginning of the war, the 5th New York, Duryea's Zouaves, were one of the crack regiments in the army. They were brigaded with the U.S. regulars later on. Uh, he taught his men how to use the bayonet and this pick and spade. He would be in the trench lines working with them, showing them how to build the fortifications, how to arrange them. And the men were amazed that here he was wearing the fatigues and helping them with the pick and shovel. They loved him for it. According to the historian of the 5th Corps, Warren was not an executive officer. He was, in every sense of the word, a commander and a strategist. When he had the opportunity of testing his strategic ability, he was never found wanting. While there was never in his composition an element of insubordination or lack of desire to carry out all orders given to him, yet when detailed instructions were given him, they seemed to rob him of his individuality. And if you remember a quote from a general named George Patton, he says, never tell your men what to, how to do something. Tell them what to do and you'll be amazed at what they come up with to get it done. Words to that effect. After his success at the Weldon Railroad in August of 1864, Warren writes, Grant spoke very kindly of my past services and efforts, but I thought, but thought I was too self-reliant in executing my duties and did not stoutly obey orders and cooperate in his general plans closely enough. Not that he didn't succeed, but he didn't do it A, B, C, D the way Grant wanted to. He did it the way that he thought was best when he's on the field doing it. Why is self-reliance a bad thing? He's accused, though, of overstepping his authority questioning or changing his orders, and acting if he knew better than his commanders. Yet, Warren's entire career from being a fresh cadet out of West Point was given independent authority, usually doing things on his own authority with little or no help. His commanders always sought out his opinion, and like Meade said, followed it nine times out of ten. So, these are all the various men that Warren served under during the course of the war and in the years before. And he met with all of their approval. 
starting with Secretary of War Jefferson Davis, under whom Warren went and did those three uh, excursions into the Dakota Territories to map. William Harney, Andrew Humphreys praised Warren excessively for what he did before the war. Then Colonel Abram Durier pretty much let Warren take over the 5th New York and drill it. We heard Ben Butler's comments about Warren at Big Bethel. Uh, John Dix in Baltimore after Big Bethel when Warren's troops went to Baltimore and he met his future wife. Uh, he recommended some changes to the defenses of Baltimore and was given permission by General Dix to personally supervise and build Fort Federal Hill, the important fort overlooking Baltimore Harbor. During the rest of the war under McClellan, Sykes, and Porter, Warren was praised for his conduct on the battlefield as a subordinate officer. We saw what he did for John Pope at Second Bull Run. Hooker and Meade and Burnside all sought him out and praised him, both, want, both Hooker and Meade wanting him to be chief of staff. And later, Meade made him corps commander. He re, uh, and he followed his advice even after Mine Run, where Meade paid a heavy political price for Warren's decision to cancel the assault. Instead of getting rid of him, he made him one of those three corps commanders. Warren could do no wrong for any of these men until he encountered the dynamic duo. <laughs> These were the men who didn't like Warren because Warren didn't have a good impression of them because he had the audacity to criticize their incompetence and stupidity. Vocally, at Warren's headquarters, Grant was referred to as useless. Washington Roebling writes, useless came to our headquarters last night. Uh, probably not a smart thing to do? <laughs> Sheridan, of course, bungled the use of the cavalry all through uh, the campaign, and he and Warren clashed over the lack of cavalry doing what cavalry should do on many occasions, and that led to bad blood between them. In one instance, where Warren at Bethesda Church, where Warren says, Cavalry, I have to do the reconnaissance work that the cavalry should do. Where are they? And Meade and, and Sheridan writes to Meade, well, Warren can do it just as well as I can, and both generals get admonished to play nice. This is Winfield Scott Hancock. He's generally regarded as the premier corps commander in the U.S. Army. Hancock was superb. How do we know that? Because it's in every damn book we read. <laughs> but Hancock, as a corps commander, was pretty average. He got command of a corps right after the Battle of Chancellorsville, so less than a month before the Battle of Gettysburg, where he won fame. But at Gettysburg, Hancock didn't act as a corps commander. He was a field commander. He was taking charge of all the troops on the field, not his own corps. Somebody else was. I think uh, Alexander Webb or, or John Gibbon was, was handling the second corps at Gettysburg. And he got wounded. And the second corps was commanded after that by the person that he recommended to Meade to take his place, Governor Campbell Warren, who, co who commanded it from August of 1863 until March of 1864 when he took command of the fifth corps. This is Colonel Horace Porter campaigning with Grant. If you bought the Time Life Collector's Library of the Civil War, the first premier volume that you got was this book. 
What a great book that was when I read it. I didn't realize it was a novel. <laughs> Horace is often quoted in that book that Grant had a high, a high regard for Warren at the beginning of the Overland Campaign. And he stated, and Grant stated that if anything should happen to Meade, Warren would be the guy that he would seek to replace Meade as commander of the army. Well, Warren was the junior corps commander. Hancock, Sedgwick, Burnside all outranked Warren. This is nonsense. This never would have happened. Grant couldn't possibly have thought of that just based on his own conduct later on in the campaign when he won't give Warren command over Burnside because Burnside ranks him. It's just ludicrous. But it was written well after the war and well after uh, Warren was dead, so nobody ever checks or refutes these things. Battle of the Wilderness. Warren's Fifth Corps is leading off this most important campaign, the showcase event. U.S. Grant, the hero of the West, comes east, joins up with Meade, going to keep his headquarters in the field and march off to whip Bobby Lee. And who's his advanced spearman? Governor Kemble Warren in the Fifth Corps. Now, Warren had mapped the wilderness for Joe Hooker, and he knew the terrain. He did not want to stop in the middle of the woods when he got the order to go into bivouac. He wanted to go through, but he did as he was told. <coughs> Unfortunately, James Harrison Wilson, who the toady of Grant, who was brought from the west to east, an engineer who was given command of cavalry for the first time. I think he knew what a horse was. Oh, that's the thing I'm writing. But he had no idea how to command cavalry, and he didn't reconnoiter the roads that the Confederates appeared on. And so in the early morning uh, stages of that battle, when Warren's men wake up and see Confederates where they shouldn't be, especially not without somebody having told us, like the cavalry pickets that are on the road where they're supposed to be, they bring, Warren sends uh, alerts to headquarters. Confederates are here in force. Grant gives him the order through Meade, pitch into them without regard for your dispositions. Well, what does that mean? That means just go march into the fray and don't pay any attention to anything that a professional soldier should pay attention to before he starts getting his men killed. And all of Warren's division commanders protest vehemently, this is insane. We have to wait for, John Sedgwick is supposed to come up and support, and he's not here. Warren tries to de delay the attack. He's ordered, do it. So he tells his division commanders, do it. And guess what? They do it. And guess what? It's a disaster. Warren gets criticized by Gordon Ray for these disjointed attacks. And this is the reason why his star falls in the opinion of U.S. Grant. This is uh, Saunders Field in the Battle of the Wilderness where John uh, Griffin, or Charles Griffin's division goes forward into the teeth of Confederate fire and his men get slaughtered. Two of Warren's divisions get bloodied in this attack during that first day. Later in the day, after this battle has gone away a little bit and troops are forming up and getting prepared, there's another order for me to attack. And Warren tells Meade, come and look. And Meade cancels the attack when he realizes that it's going to be just another futile uh, assault. Gordon Ray writes, the 5th Corps never left the safety of its trenches. In the paragraph below him saying that Meade canceled the attack. It doesn't make sense to me. Somebody can explain it to me. 
Now, after his star has fallen because he's dilatory in action at the wilderness, and Grant is going to march to Spotsylvania crossroads, and the army has to march under cover of night and do it secretly and quickly to get to those crossroads, who do they give the orders to to make that move? Governor K. Warren in the Fifth Corps. Now, why in the hell would you give the guy that's your troublemaker the most important job in the field? It doesn't make sense, but they do. And Warren's making good time until he runs into guess whose cavalry blocking the road at Todd's Tavern. And guess who isn't on the field? He's sleeping in a farmhouse somewhere and nobody knows where he is. And so several hours are wasted while Meade comes up and orders the cavalry to get out of the road and make way for the infantry. So Warren goes into conflict thinking there's only Confederate cavalry in front of him, but because of that untimely delay, it's the lead elements of Richard Heron Anderson's infantry, because Anderson is taking the place of Longstreet, and they are now uh, starting to fortify the road. Realizing the emergency, Warren orders his divisions to go into combat as they come up. They're out of breath. They've marched all night. They've had barely a break. Some of them are winded from double-quicking all the way there. But he sends them in. One of his division commanders begs him, give me 15 minutes. Warren says, we ain't got it. And he personally leads one of the charges up against the Laurel Hill position. Sketched by uh, Alfred Wode in one of his many uh, drawings depicting Warren in action. Gordon Ray condemns Warren. Apparently, he learned nothing from what happened in the wilderness. Ray says that Warren is trying to recapture the luster on his star that he lost through his disappointing actions in the wilderness. But nothing in Warren's conduct or career ever anywhere had to do with him seeking glory for himself. It was get the job done, get it done smartly, and get it done with an economy of human life. It doesn't make sense from anything we know about the man. And then there's the great novelist James Harrison Wilson. Under the Old Flag, his memoirs, written in 1912. Conveniently, everybody that he wrote about was dead. It's nice to be the last man standing. This story is repeated by every National Park historian, and it's almost every book that deals with the Overland Campaign. In the opening stages of the battle at Spotsylvania, Meade sends, now uh, supposedly Meade gives orders to Warren to cooperate with John Sedgwick. Now, two modern historians write that Meade sent him an order. Of course, they don't document that order because it doesn't exist. And according to James Harrison Wilson, who was a classmate of Warren's in the 1850 class at West Point, although never his friend or confidant, Wilson writes, Warren explodes at this cooperate order. I'll be damned if I'll cooperate with Sedgwick or anybody else. You're the commander of this army and can give your orders and I'll obey them. Or you can give, put Sedgwick in command and I'll obey his orders. Or you can put me in command and he'll obey my orders. But I'll be goddamned if I'll cooperate with anybody. That's what James Harrison Wilson says. Except he wasn't there. After the blow-up at Todd's Tavern, when, when Meade told, had a blow-up with Sheridan and told Grant what Sheridan said, that he should be allowed to go whip Bobby Lee, because that's what cavalry was for, and Grant told Meade, well, he know, knows what he's talking about, let him do it. Sheridan did. He was off killing Jeb Stewart at Yellow Tavern. He wasn't present. Everybody repeats this story of if it's true, but none of the people that were there mention it. Not Meade, not Humphreys. Sedgwick has an excuse, he got killed later. Not, not 
Not Washington Roebling, not Theodore Lyman, not Charles Wainwright, not Dana. Nobody. Because it didn't happen. It's invented. It's fiction. Another mischaracterization is that he refused to attack on May 12th. When uh, the attack on the mule shoe was happening, Warren is supposed to create diversionary attacks to bring some of the press to stop the Confederates from sending reinforcements to the breakthrough. He's covering a two-core front. His men have already attacked and failed at this position numerous times, including early that morning. And this is where a dispatch from Meade goes to Grant and says, Warren seems uh, unwilling to make the attack. And Grant responds, if he doesn't do it, remove him from command. Except in the time it took for those dispatches to cross, Warren made two attacks and repulsed both times. And he sends Meade an, uh, a message, look, the Confederates are on both my flanks with artillery. If you let me silence the artillery first, maybe these attacks have a chance. Otherwise, when they repulse us, they can use that as a springboard, a bridgehead, and he uses the French terms, point de puy, to launch a counterattack. Gordon Ray condemns him for this. Look at this. You can imagine the, the, the veins in Meade's neck pulsing when he gets this... Uh, when he gets this preaching from Warren. And what's more, it's in French. <laughs> well, guess what? They teach French at West Point for a reason. All the engineering manuals and everything were in French. And if, if Warren had said, oh, well, if I attack here, they'll, if, I get, if I fail, they'll use it as a bridge. And Meade will say, why the hell didn't you say point de puy? I would have got it in two words instead of two paragraphs. It's just professional... It's just professional dialogue. Historians that don't know what they're talking about shouldn't talk. And they shouldn't write. For the rest of the campaign, from, the north, from, from after uh, Spotsylvania, North Anna, all the way through the Battle of Five Forks, Warren leads and is in command of numerous, numerous uh, separate independent affairs and as, as well as parts of the bigger picture. At the Battle of the Weldon Railroad in 1864, he sent on a raid to break the railroad. He goes out with, the, with his corps and he seizes the railroad and makes a permanent lodgment on it. And for three days, the Confederates try to drive him off and they, and they fail. Uh, Earl Hess says Warren never gets the credit he deserves for what he did and for the defensive works that he built there that allowed him to hold that position, which seriously crippled the supplies coming into Petersburg. Warren wrote, The enemy attacked me again yesterday with a very heavy force, but I had everything well arranged and whipped them easily. And yet the only word I have received in acknowledgement of my having maintained myself there was a note from Grant to General Meade saying it seemed to him I ought to have done more. He did what he was ordered to and more already. And this is from the guy who criticizes him for overstepping his authority. All through the Petersburg campaign we see this all the way up to Five Forks. There's two other points about Warren that are universally made and incorrect. First, as depicted by David Jordan, that he suffered from depression. Warren's aversion to the needless sacrifice of his men making frontal charges against fortifications is well documented. Why in the hell would he be happy about doing that when he built those works and knew how deadly they were? So, 
uh, if, if he's uh, Washington Roebling wrote to uh, to Emily, his lady love, that the general's got a big disgust on again today. Well, big disgust is a lot different than a big depression. Warren's not crying in his tent. He's on edge, just like everybody else. Of course, when Warren swears in his profane and has a temper tantrum, it shows that he's a manic depressive and, and bad. When Phil Sheridan or, or, or Winfield Scott Hancock do it, it's just their character. This is how boisterous they are. There's an inconsistency and an illogicality in the way that some of these things are handled. Was he depressed? He wasn't happy. Uh, in, in another letter to Emily, Washington Roebling writes, uh, the, the, you know, the general's got a big disgust on. There's only one cure for that, and we both know what that is. Warren wanted to get a leave to go home and wasn't being allowed. Well, Roebling and Emily were a little premature in their honeymoon, apparently. Uh, so... <laughs> That's what he thought Warren's problem might be. But during the campaign, Warren is doing all sorts of things. If you're depressed, if anybody here has suffered from depression or knows people that have, there's a very severe change in their demeanor and their productivity and the way they do things. Now, Warren spent many sleepless nights, but he was also uh, looking under the microscope with Theodore Lyman, looking at these little organisms from the river, trying to figure out what they were. Or they were calculating algebraic equations on if the, if the stream is going this fast and we're in the boats, we want to get there, what's the best angle to do it? Or he's building a fly trap, like a mouse trap, with this convoluted machine to catch flies that every general in, in at Petersburg came to his camp to play with to see how it worked. Or he's holding full military honor funerals for the unexploded artillery shells that land in his headquarters. This is not what depressed people do. It may be what crazy people do. <laughs> But there's a little difference there. It's also widely reported that after his removal that in his, his fight for justice that he dies of a broken heart. If I read that again, I'm going to vomit. Warren had liver disease and diabetes, probably brought on by extreme exertion and stress in combat, sleepless nights, poor diet. Uh, he died of complications of that. Why would he die of a broken heart when he knew he'd been vindicated by the court of inquiry? Another illogicality. What about these guys? What do the Confederates think of him? Warren humiliated or defeated every single one of these men on the battlefield at different times and places. Captain Gordon uh, McCabe wrote, We recalled that we had the honor to meet the 5th Army Corps under Warren on many a hard-fought field. And we recognized that whenever we tackled that corps, that we had our work cut out for us, and that its leader was a most daring and stubborn antagonist. They weren't saying, oh, thank God it's the 5th Corps. He's going to be so slow and cautious that we can do whatever we want and not get hurt. Doesn't their opinion count for something? Warren, like I said, he embarrassed each and every one of these men on various occasions. And what about this guy? The Marble Man, Robert E. Lee, that dignified figure of poise and calm temperament. He's known during the war to have several severe temper tantrums and to lose his cool. In many of those instances, at least four, the proximate cause of his uh, ire was Governor Kemble Warren. First at Bristow Station, when Lee has to chastise A.P. Hill for that headlong attack <laughs> and saying, well, let's bury these men and say no more about it. 
And then at the North Anna, North Anna River, where apparently Hill hadn't been paying attention, and Warren bloodied his nose after making a successful lodgment across the North Anna. Hancock the Superb failed to cross further downstream. But Warren got across, and even Charles Dana had to write complimentary things to the War Department about Warren. He got the thanks of Congress for that, but nobody ever reports that. At the James River, after Cold Harbor, when Grant's going to make that march to Petersburg, here's this slow, cautious, undependable, argumentative subordinate, Governor K. Warren, who's given the premier job of screening that movement so that Lee doesn't know one, that the Army of the Potomac has left, and two, where it went when it finds out that it did leave. And Warren screens the Army to the point of, on the second day, if you read uh, E. Porter Alexander's memoirs, Lee is having a temper tantrum demanding to know where the hell is the Army of the Potomac and why can't anybody tell me? Because Warren had done such a good job. At the Weldon Railroad, we've already talked about that, where Warren does way more than he was intended to by not breaking the railroad, but by seizing the railroad and holding it. And at the White Oak Road, again, Meade, uh, General Lee, personally arranges a trap for the Fifth Corps. And Warren walks into the trap, one of his divisions does, and gets repulsed. But Warren recovers, goes back, and drives him off. And Lee watches it happen. And then at Five Forks, he was very upsetting to Robert E. Lee. Well, this is Henry Heath, a general. And at a banquet after the Civil War in the presence of many other generals, when he was asked about to comment, he wrote, I always class General Warren among the best officers in the Army of the Potomac. Well, so do I. And if we ever finish our book, you can read all about it. Thank you. Any shots fired? Oh, well, what's all this going on after the war? I'm trying to not at all. Not at all, because that was put up by men, members of the Fifth uh, New York, his first, and, and other other uh, organizations of veterans that served under him. It was a huge deal. In the months after Gettysburg, when Meade was under a cloud because the, the Confederates had recrossed the river back into Virginia, and he writes that order that they've, they've gone back into their own territory, and Lincoln has a temper tantrum because it's all our territory. People were screaming to have Meade removed, and there was a lot of a lot of pressure to put Warren in command of the Army of the Potomac. And the citizens of New York uh, gave him a beautiful presentation sword inscribed as big ceremony. And you can see this beautiful sword in, in his collections at the New York State Library in Albany. He was, he was the lion of the hour. The newspaper reports, other generals that had served under him, everybody saw him as the man that sooner or later would get army command. So there was no, it, it was a huge deal when that monument w went up. There's another one in the Bronx of, of Warren. <laughs> yeah. yeah Bob, what, uh, how did all these historians miss this? Another, you, you pointed out, persuasively so, that Warren justly criticized and used models, but obviously they did not consult this. This court of inquiry after the war, and, and try to 
dispute or not what everyone else is saying about why was correct or not. Well, in the final analysis, he did exactly what he was supposed to do. In, in the final analysis, a lot of the things he was accused of not doing are lies or misrepresentations. There were things that he is uh, supposed to have done that just didn't happen, and certainly not the way. If you want, if you have a, if you have a, a day when you have nothing to do, read the transcripts of the court of inquiry. Read U.S. Grant's testimony, and read Philip H. Sheridan's testimony. Nothing ever changes. It's like watching these hearings in Washington in the recent past. I don't remember. I have no clear recollection. I didn't do that, did I? You can get them. You can get them. I've got them at home. Uh, <laughs> uh, Paulo's read them uh, every comma and, and period, the co-author of our, our book, if it ever comes out. But a lot of times people have relied almost universally on the credibility of that great masterpiece of military narrative, U.S. Grant's memoirs. But read them. Check the facts. They do that now. Oh, he said it was Tuesday and it was really Thursday, so he's a liar. They didn't do that with Grant's memoirs. Frank Varney did, and he has a very different view of, of U.S. Grant's memoirs. U.S. Grant in the rewriting of history. He was a speaker here a few years back. So there is, there is, when, when you do the homework, when you look at these, everybody knows it's true because it's in every book. But nobody goes and looks under the racks to see what else is there. This James Harrison Wilson story is just fiction. But National Park historians taking you to the spot will tell you that tale as if it's fact. And it just isn't. So, uh, Mark. Yeah, I know you recall, I can't give you the verbatim quotes, so I'm reading a series of essays by Bruce Catton. Maybe this was Catton's style, I don't know if you know the historiography. <laughs> Talking about Warren's uh, removal at Five Forks, uh, he, I think he tried to do justice to both sides. He was sympathetic to Warren because it was unfair because that division was, and he was delayed getting to the battlefield. But on the other hand, Catton said something to the effect that the high command wanted this one. Right. He sides with Sheridan. Right he, si he, he sides with Sheridan. Yeah. He's sympathetic, poor, poor Warren, but get out of the way, you're an obstacle. And that's kind of the approach he takes. Uh, that's why his picture was up there with the historians that get it wrong. <laughs> well, I, I just, what I'm saying is that that is not an unfair characterization of the mindset of the high command at that particular point in time, right near the end of the war. We must get this war over today. Yes, but... <laughs> Grant did not like Warren. Oh, well, that's clear. Yeah. Okay? He tries several times between January and May, March of 1865 to get rid of Warren. He wants to put him in command in the Shenandoah Valley after Crook gets captured with his pants down. He wants, he wants to send him there. But Stanton overrules him. Grant tries to, to move him around, tries to move Meade around. He's setting the stage so that only Grant's guys get to go to the party afterwards and he can't do it and there's uh, un you saw it right to dispatch that says uh, what does it say I, the, the dispatch about cut his head off yeah so they set him up for it they set him up for it there's a reason why Warren didn't go with 
Sheridan to the Shenandoah Valley in 1864. The Sixth Corps went. Why? Because Sheridan didn't like Warren. Horatio Wright wasn't going to argue with anybody. <laughs> but Warren might have had a brain. Uh, somebody over here first, and then you, Bruce. So, so it appears that your portrayal of Warren is highly confident military officer. But it occurs to me that he's not very smart. So, <laughs> That's exactly right. He doesn't play the political games that are necessary to get ahead. So is that the main reason why he is part of the government? I think the main reason was because, as I found out, I don't know who else has worked for a bureaucracy, but when you have a difference of opinion with a superior and you commit the unforgivable sin of being right, they get you if they can. And that's ultimately that's the buzzsaw that Warren ran into. But he got along, he could get along with everybody. But he has, now, here's a guy that you loved or hated. There's no middle ground. If you wanted the job done, you went to him because he was competent, he was professional, and he was going to do it or find a way to do it. It was going to get done. But if you were incompetent, if you weren't as efficient as he was, he was going to step on your toes, kick you in the butt, and knock you in the mud. And he wasn't going to apologize for it afterwards. And many people wrote that he was the smartest guy in the room. But he didn't tell them that. They knew it. Some of them were jealous of him, like Marcina Patrick, who, whose pets weren't getting promoted as rapidly as this little upstart from nowhere. But other people respected it. Grant was the only, Grant only wanted Grant guys to do anything. And he was a micromanager. Warren probably would have been Robert E. Lee's star player had he been in the Army of Northern Virginia because he would have done Stonewall on steroids because he, he would have known what the big plan was and he would have done what a Napoleonic Corps commander would do. Go out and think and act for yourself. Knowing the big plan, here's your responsibility. Do it and do it well, but keep in touch and keep everybody informed of what you were doing. That was Warren. He would have, he would have been the star of Confederate Chronicles had he been in the Army of Northern Virginia. But under Grant, who very jealously guarded his own, after Fort Donelson when he was removed and after Shiloh when he was under the cloud, Grant never let anybody come up with an idea that was in opposition to his own. And if you did, he got rid of you. And that's why the war was That's Arguably, that's part of it. Uh, Bruce. Yeah, I don't know how familiar you are with uh, Winston Churchill. I plowed through the six volume history of him. Me and the authors were about the only people who read all six volumes. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but one of the, well, it's a long, each one was a thousand pages. Like the new biography. <laughs> yeah. uh, but reading that, I was thinking of parallels with Governor Warren. Because when Churchill was a Secretary of War, essentially in the 1920s, he drove his cabinet colleagues nuts because he'd do his own War Department job and then he'd try and tell them in lengthy memos how they should do foreign policy, how they should do uh, domestic policy. And they were driven so nuts by them, they recognized his ability to say, we just can't work with this person yeah. because he's always driving but, us nuts with his suggestions. But see, but see, there's documentation for that. But Warren didn't do that. 
Warren would send, when you ordered him, hey, go across the river, he'd say, hey, are you aware there's an army corps on the other side of it? Is that questioning orders or is that making, making your commander aware of something that he may not know because he's not there on the ground? I would say that human beings would usually consider that to question orders, whether technically it is or not. So I'm not a human being. <laughs> <laughs> welcome to the major. Welcome to the majority. <laughs> no, but but even even if that is true, if you have a subordinate general or a subordinate colonel or a subordinate private second class who isn't following your orders and who is causing a problem in your methodology and getting to the objective, it's your responsibility to get rid of him, not to keep promoting him and giving him greater responsibility. No, I'm not talking about vertical relationship. I'm talking about under U.S. Grant. The relationship of Warren to his fellow corporate. But, which is a different story. But see, but Warren had, in the, in the 10 years before the Civil War, for a lot of that time, Warren's commanding officer was Andrew A. Humphreys. Andrew A. Humphreys was Meade's chief of staff after Gettysburg when they got rid of Dan Butterfield. But I'm I'm getting there. Humphreys, Meade, and Warren, as peers, as engineers who had a working relationship, talked above and around and about everybody. It was part of what he was brought in to do, and he was rewarded for doing it until he ran into Grant. So even with his other corps commanders, they were all happy to do it. Look at, at Cold Harbor on the night before the, the June attacks at Cold Harbor. Warren, that night, it's after Bethesda Church. He's on the far uh, flank. I forget which one it is. I think it might be the Union right. And his, Washington Roebling, Warren, and the... Uh, uh, Ninth Corps chief engineer are reconnoitering the lines uh, with Potter, Robert Potter, and they see a gap in the Confederate lines where there's no works. And Warren sends Roebling to, to Meade's headquarters urgently, saying, Look, here's an opportunity. We got the Fifth Corps and the Ninth Corps, there's a gap, we can attack. Give me command or give Burnside command, and let's do this. And Meade looks at us, well, yeah, this sounds good, but well, you know, oh, Burnside, Burnside ranks Warren, so I can't really put him in command. You better go to Grant. So Roebling trots off to Grant's headquarters, and Grant says, ooh, yeah, that, uh, that sounds good, but, you know, it really wouldn't be right to let Warren take command of Burnside. And I don't trust Burnside enough to give him command. So he writes the order that they are to cooperate in the attack. Washington Roebling then finds out that somebody stole his horse. So he's got no way to get, so he borrows a horse from Theodore Lyman after eating pickles for supper. <laughs> Goes back with, with Grant's response, which basically, and he writes in his own journal of the campaign, it says that at approximately 3,600 seconds after, <laughs> after dawn, we should go and, and cooperate and play nice. Now, how they thought that Warren was going to be able to get Burnside to do something that as commander of the army and commander of all the armies, Grant nor Meade could do, begs 
explanation. And of course, Burnside was late, and by the time they got ready to make the assault, it was pointless. That's part of the problem. <laughs> the other Corps commanders never said anything negative about Warren. Uh, I know this fact that when fellow teachers came to me and said, gave me suggestions as to what to do and everything, I think I'm going to be most of the things would resent Look at, now, now the, 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 the mythical order of I'll be damned if I'll cooperate with anybody has a basis in fact. But if you look at the way a lot of those Civil War orders are written, it's to cooperate. Well, how can you cooperate? Look at the quote that Lincoln said, it's better to have one bad general in command than two good generals at odds with each other. And it's uh, my take on it, the quote. But they, there was no disparity. The problem was cooperation and jealousy between some of them, like Burnside, all the corps commanders in the army, all the staff officers wrote about Burnside being late. Hancock makes disparaging uh, uh, remarks about Burnside. Uh, of course he's not going to be on time. Of course he's going to be late. That's why there is a disaster on the second day at the wilderness, because Burnside's not where he's supposed to be when he's supposed to be there. At that time, up until the North Anna, up until the North Anna, yes, he was because he had previously commanded the army and he outranked Meade. Would it be true to say that after the war, when all these other people were writing negative stuff, it was pure jealousy? Partially. But also part of it was we put this smear on Warren and we have to justify it because there's questions being asked. While, while Warren was seeking the court of inquiry, at one point Grant makes the remark to somebody else about why he's denying it. I can't do that. Sheridan is too great a friend. Yeah, I want to ask you more. I don't know Warren political inclinations and connections Immediately after, at the time of Gettysburg and thereafter. None. None. He is, he, None. He's, he was sort of, uh, he had uh, not really a godfather, but uh, uh, Edward Morgan, who was uh, a senator from New York, sort of knew Warren's family. But Warren never went to him until he was seeking the court of inquiry. He was trying to get him to intercede then. But never during the war did Warren play politics. Never. One question about grants going through this renaissance the last number of years of reevaluation. Now, what he did to Lou Wallace after Charlotte, what he did to John McFernand after Vicksburg, what he did to Rosecrans after after everything. Sure. <laughs> how 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 do you? What he tried to do to George Thomas. Right. Yes. How do you? How do you? How do you? How does a, someone who's reading these things, how do you evaluate or reevaluate General Grant? As I, when I was, uh, Paula started to work on, on the biography of, of Warren, and when she brought me in and asked me to, to help her write it, I said, okay, but you're never going to divorce yourself from the fact that U.S. Grant won the Civil War. So it's hard to argue with success. It's hard to change opinions. This is the man that won the Civil War. Yeah, 
He won. Winning dirty, they call it in baseball, right, bros? <laughs> so there, there are there's winning ugly. Either either way, it depends on what team, right? Uh, <laughs> the St. Louis Cardinals under under uh, that idiot that used to uh, uh, coach the White Sox, uh, they were pretty dirty. But uh, what's his name? Tony Larusa. That's the guy. <laughs> so that was winning dirty, but. There's there's a lot of that. <laughs> Somebody, yeah. I'm wondering in your own studies if you have noticed that certain uh, presses or publishers are supporting and advancing this kind of dominant negative narrative. <laughs> yes. About not just Warren, but about various aspects well, of the Civil War. One of that are. Who is the premier publisher of Civil War books today? Savas Bay, North Carolina used to be, but I think more titles are are are, are come out under the Savas Bay umbrella than anybody else. And actually, uh, you can't see the spine of this is the cover that Savas Bay people designed for our book, which isn't out yet. But some of the books that he publishes, that some of those authors' pictures are on on that slide, are the ones who don't do their homework and in. In the footnotes in the narrative, when I got it kicked back from the the uh, editor, I was like, "You better ask Ted about this because I criticized these other books for getting the facts wrong and not doing their homework." <laughs> when the legend becomes a fact, print the legend. What was your answer? The book's not out yet. <laughs> the, the point is, yes, they're, they're, even the same author who's going to publish this book is publishing the opposite without, without scrutiny. And when you point it out to them, they don't want to hear it. What can I say? I don't, I don't publish books. I try to write them. Professors need to... Convey enough to uh, budding scholars. Uh, well, I mean, do your homework. Well, but I mean, yeah. I, I think today we call it fake news, or at least some people do. But if you know that the facts are contrary to what you're saying, why? Are, are, especially as a historian, it's your job to give the best evidence to explain what happened, how, and why. Speculation goes beyond the realm of history, but it's what roundtables do, right? But if you want to be taken seriously, you should do an, You should try to, to, to look at the facts, and before you averse something, see if there's anything to back it up. You and I know that, right? The publishers, they don't care. <laughs> so why do we buy their books? <laughs> no, but I'm suggesting that they're, they are... Uh, advancing certain narratives, dominant narratives that uh, uh, somehow need to be uh, questioned and uh, uh, rebutted somehow. Yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, but, but the way is to... How do you do that? Well, how do you do that? And, and when, you, when you are challenging one of, one of the tr- Holy Trinity of the Civil War, U.S. Grant or Phil Sheridan, when you're, when you're criticizing them... I mean, you'd be burned at the stake as a heretic. Ask Joan of Arc about that. <laughs> Wasn't Grant called the butcher? Yes, at the time. Even at the time. 
you know, you don't hear that in the uh, public domain. It's it's still there, and some a lot of it's fair. But but a speaker here in in in, in his book, even though. Uh, somebody in the audience pointed out that his arithmetic on one of the slides was wrong. Uh, the title of the book is Grant a Victor, Not a Butcher. Hmm. Well, uh, I'm going to take a little story about the Davis papers to ask you more about the grant papers. I'm not that familiar with the grant papers. In the Davis papers, suppose they, they list every piece of paper he ever wrote to somebody. And I always produce, and everyone he received from somebody, they at least acknowledged it. A couple of them that are missing from the Davis papers. One is a message you left for Forrest at Bags Headquarters on Missionary Ridge in October of 1863, telling him to meet him in Montgomery. Now, there are accounts by people who sent Forrest got the letter. Forrest met him in Montgomery, there's no doubt about that. Going back on the train with him to Atlanta. It is not mentioned in the paper. There's also a letter. Mahalia, some of you may have heard of Mahalia wrote. He's like the Mary Testament and the Sarah Morgan Dawson. She's the other one. She might have been Jeff Davis's girlfriend. She was a widow. Jeff was married at the time. And there are accounts of one of his letters that is well known by a lot of historians that the papers are in, in, in North Carolina or Melbourne or something. It doesn't get listed in the Davis papers. So, I mean, they did some wonderful work. I don't know how good, I don't, I, I, how well are the grant papers researched? Because there aren't many holes in the Davis papers. Well, you know, we just had, uh, we just had uh, uh, John Marzalek up here, uh, uh, a few months ago, uh, talking about the grant papers, he inherited that job from uh, from John Simon. You mentioned one though, the, the one right. that we broke the ten cents, and it's in the grant. It's paper. in the footnotes. It's in the footnote, but is it said that they that we sent it or? Did no, it's acknowledged that it was never sent. Okay, and it was me writing that to Grant. Yes, okay. it was going to be, and one of the reasons I went to, to one of the reasons we went. To, to go look in the Mead papers in Philadelphia was to see if there were any other such letters in Mead's papers where he had problems with somebody, if there was any other evidence either for or against where, where he made this kind of formal charge if it got delivered against one of his senior commanders. Because remember, for a corps commander or an army general, only the President of the United States can make or break them without cause. Everybody else has to show cause. And this letter was Meade's formal uh, indictment, if you will, to have to justify getting Warren removed. He didn't send it. So you, you think you would say that the editor of the paper is got it perfect? Yes, but it's mischaracterized with the punctuation because it, it's used as a justification for what happens later, but when you see the original document, you can see clearly that this is written in anger. But did they make it clear that Grant didn't see this? Sorry. Grant was aware of the contents. Grant was aware of the contents, but it's not a deal until you sign on the dotted line, and that never happened. So, does it set a stage? Does it plant a seed? Yeah, of course. 
but so does if you plant the seed and then you pull the, the seedling out of the ground, you don't have a tree, right? So there, there's obviously all the praise in that letter when Mead cooled off outweighed the one thing that pissed him off. And he thought better of it. And he and, and Warren actually uh, mended fences. Uh, Dennis. Correct, but, um, when the grant comes east in 64, obviously, in third kind of like conflict demand, structure demand. Did you ever threaten uh, to resign or did you ever demand to be uh, reassigned? Grant? No, no. Uh, I'm sorry, Warren. Warren never no, no, no. Because Warren never had a problem. Warren thought he was going to lose his head a couple of times, like on, on, on June 20th. and, and it, But he also writes home to, to his wife that he's, he's the rat that belled the cat. <laughs> he gave Mead a piece of his mind that Mead needed to hear. The problem that was that he did it in front of an audience, and me didn't like that, and that's what really uh, tick- Ray gets that wrong in his book. By the way, uh, it's, it, the way he characterizes it, he's got the wrong date and the wrong reason. But no, Warren, never Warren never wanted to do anything except the best job he could in the position that he was holding. But he aspired for more. He was waiting for a chance. Never came. Grant tried to get rid of Meade. He did. He tried to get rid of uh, Warren. He couldn't until he could. But Warren was uh, not happy with the way the army was being run. But he still did his job. That was that was his nature. So to, to say like that, oh well, he lost his reputation in the wilderness, and so now he's going to make these piecemeal attacks just to try to gain some glory. That's nonsense, and it shouldn't be reported as fact when. It, there's nothing else in his whole career at any level of command where he shows that kind of uh, uh, egotism. Yes. One more. So how, how did you uh, begin your studies and, uh, or gain interest in walking? <laughs> Pass the buck. Pass the buck. Uh, D- during, during, uh, well, you want to tell, I'll tell it. During Paula's research, she came to despise U.S. Grant and Philip Sheridan so much she felt she couldn't be impartial. <laughs> is, that tr- is that fair? <laughs> so she, she asked me to, and uh, nobody can keep me on the straight and narrow. I don't try to do that with anybody else. <laughs> it's, too, it's too hard of a job trying to, to, to stay in my own shoes. Yes, yes. You see whose name is first here. <laughs> so, uh, but uh, uh, we we clashed on a few things, but also I think it's a better book because we did on, on both sides, and we're still uh, we're still trying to finish it, mainly because I haven't done my job yet, but. Uh, when it's done, we're either going to give it to the publisher that heralded it two years before he gave us an editor, or we're going to farm it somewhere else. But we want the book that comes out to be the book we wrote. <laughs> Someday my prince will come. <laughs> the page proofs, right? No, right here. Oh, didn't see you. Well, yes and no, because, uh, and here's the difference, and this is, what, this is something, and, and Paula can verify it, when, when we're doing 
the research and I'm doing the writing and I'm going through these campaigns and trying to describe these battles and looking at the facts and checking for, for other sources and finding contrary to what is in the books that I read and that I'm using. And so I would ask Paula, who the hell am I to question Gordon Ray? Look at the work he's done. Look at this. Who the hell am I to question him? I ended up, I'm sorry, I ended up saying, who the hell is he? <laughs> because he got it wrong. Here's the difference with him and with David Jordan. They're lawyers. I'm a I was a detective. I use the evidence to make my case. I don't start with the with a preconceived notion and try to build a case to prove my point. I let the evidence take me to the end, whether I like the end or not. And I was looking at things this way, and a lot of people were only looking at it that way. And I think I found enough to seriously question. One of one of the authors uh, that's been here said that, in his opinion, I seri I I blew up David Jordan's book. That it's not a credible source anymore. Everything. Warren's own writings, his private thoughts, his closest companions and friends, what they wrote while they were witnessing it, what the Confederates said about him, what, what the other people said, and not just what they said, when did they say it? And did they have a motive for doing it? As a detective, I would have a gangbanger murder where this gang shot that gang, and I have somebody in custody. And so I'm going to the other gang, because they're going to be my witnesses. I don't get to pick altar boys. I'm stuck with what reality presents. <laughs> and ask them, and if they know that he's in the opposite gang, they'll say he did it, even if he was on, on the planet at the time. And you can't just take it at face value. You got. I want, I want to look. I keep looking. One more rock. Why did we go to Philadelphia? Hoping not to find something, but I had to know it wasn't there. Did that answer your question?